Yeah, well done, Elspeth. What a challenging passage to uh, get your hands on uh, for today. Well done in reading that. Uh, thank you, uh, and welcome everybody to Northmead uh, Anglican Online at the moment. Uh, we're really glad that you're here with us this morning. My name is Josh. I'm one of the ministers here. We're going to spend some time now looking at God's Word together, looking at this part of Luke, Luke chapter 3, as we figure out what he has to say to us about our great Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. So please join with me as I begin our time together in prayer. Loving Father, thank you for your word in all its richness. And we ask that you would now speak to us through it. We pray that you would challenge us, that you would teach us, shape us, and help us to trust our Lord Jesus Christ all the more. We ask this in his name. Amen. But I've said I'm sorry, is one of the most common phrases said in our house during this lockdown. It's usually infused with a dose of contempt and considerable passion. But why all the angst? Well, three reasons, I think. The phrase is wheeled out when the crime has been apologised for, but the punishment still stands. It's so unfair. I've said I'm sorry. Second, the phrase is used when a parent is still angry, even though apologetic syllables have been kind of uttered through gritted teeth. But I've said I'm sorry. Sorry. And sometimes the phrase is not said out of frustration or impending punishment, but sometimes just signals that the child in question still feels horrible, but they're drowning in guilt and sorrow and self-pity, or a mixture of all three. It's a way of saying, I feel no joy, no reconciliation, no peace. But I've said I'm sorry. So here's the question. If I protest but I've said, I'm sorry, have I repented? Well, we'll come back to that a little later. But in the meantime, let's look at Luke 3, which is all about this idea of repentance and faith. This chapter is all about repenting and trusting Jesus. There's a whole lot of detail going on in this passage, but its message is quite simple. The opening verses there of chapter 3 pick up where we left off last week and reminds us of these unfolding events of huge significance for the world. So have a look from verse 1 with me. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, while Pontius Pilate was governor in Judea, Herod was tetrarch in Galilee, his brother Philip tetrarch in the region of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, uh, the tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. God's word came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Do you see how Luke kind of outlines the ruling authorities of the world for us? It's a bit like those Russian dolls that kind of come apart, aren't they? You know, those hugely significant Caesar Tiberius on the outside, and then he kind of works his way down through the layers. There's Pilate, and then Herod, and all his fellow local puppet rulers, all the way to the former high priest Annas, and then the current high priest Caiaphas, his son-in-law. Luke says, from the world's powers down all the way to the local religious leaders, all these rulers have one thing in common. They are powerless to stop the work of God. I mean, they might be sitting, sitting in their palaces in Rome and in the temple in Jerusalem, but unknown to them, the real action is taking place elsewhere. 
as the God who effectively has been silent for several hundred years starts to talk once again. God's Word comes to John in the wilderness. Now, it might seem a little strange to us. Why does God choose to launch this mass movement that depends on having a whole lot of water uh, in the Galilean equivalent of the Parramatta River? Why does He do that in the middle of the desert? Well, He does it to underline the connection between John and the prophet Elijah. The Word of God came to Elijah in the sticks, in the wilderness, all the way back in 1 Kings 17, after a long period of silence from God. God even said through someone like Elijah, He would break His silence. And so, for most Israelites, the idea of a long-haired, straight-talking prophet hanging out in the desert was entirely to be expected. And so, in the wilderness around the Jordan, John shows up. And what is God doing through John? He's doing one thing. He's calling people to repent. In, verse, in, in 3 verse 3, John bursts onto the scene. And you can sum up his whole message in that one word, repent. Turn around, come back to God. John's preaching focuses on calling people to submit to God, presumably so that God might forgive them. And the sign of this submission, well, he wants everybody to be drenched. Verse 3, he went into all the vicinity of the Jordan proclaiming a baptism, that is, a drenching, a washing of of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, this baptism is a sign. It's a sign of commitment, a request for forgiveness. And Luke emphasizes that John really had an impact All the people, he said, kept going out to him. Crowds flocked to hear him speak in the middle of the wilderness. And John himself, like his second cousin Jesus, people would eventually say to him, well, he might start a movement, but he's really not much of a people pleaser, is he? In fact, uh, he was a tad confrontational. Have a look at chapter 3, verse 7. This is what happens. He then said to the crowds who came out, These are the people, you know, who responded to him, the people who liked him, who actually wanted to hear his message, that traveled all the way out into the desert just to hear this guy speak. He says to them, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Well, you did, John. But this is the message, the people he gives to the people who actually are ready to repent. He says to them this, therefore... Produce fruit consistent with repentance. You see, John isn't into token gestures. He's not looking for people to support his ministry or to make his numbers look really good on his kind of prophetic resume. He wants change. He wants real, lasting, spiritual change in people's lives. That's why he calls them snakes. He's implying that they are going to face the judgment and the wrath of God. And so he tells them to produce fruit consistent with the repentance that they seem to be showing. John knows that real change leads to changed behavior. And as Israel's history amply demonstrates for us, a failure to change is a failure to repent, which leads to judgment. 
He makes the point powerfully there in verses 8 and 9. See, back in Isaiah 10, God promised to wave the acts of judgment against the cedars of Lebanon. And John warns those who boast in their religious and their ethnic credentials that this same acts God is waving in their direction. Don't even say to yourself, says John from verse 8, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, um, <clears throat> for I tell you uh, that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. The axe is already at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that doesn't produce fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. John says there is no good, it's no good saying you have great pedigree when you're about to be put down. Now, is it no wonder that Luke, along with the other gospel writers, identifies John as the last prophet? The one who would finish that kind of great procession started, that started with Elijah. Luke says, this is the one promised by Malachi in the Old Testament and Isaiah. That's why in Luke, he quotes in verse 3 and 4 from some length from Isaiah. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Because ultimately, all flesh will see the salvation of God. A new phase of salvation history is starting with John. The salvation of God is about to be revealed to both Jew and Gentile alike. God will come to the nations and the nations will finally come to God as this brave new prophet John kicks it all off in the middle of the desert. Now, I want to just pause here for a second because I think it's worth saying as an aside that I think all ministry, all Christian ministry should have a little bit of John-like edge. You know, sometimes as Christians, we need to be prepared to be blunt and to tell it the way it is and to be ready to suffer for speaking the truth. All ministry should have this edge. The Apostle Paul writes to his young protege, uh, Timothy, in 2 Timothy 4, he says this, I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus, who is going to judge the living and the dead, and because of His appearing and His kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, correct rebuke and encourage with great patience and teaching. For a time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, will multiply teachers for themselves, because they will have an itch to hear what they want to hear. Yes, we need to be gentle and thoughtful about how we express the gospel, but ministry always involves rebuking and correcting. It's what the gospel does. Because people-pleasing is not compatible with living faithfully for Jesus. But it's not actually Luke's main point here. Luke goes on to say that John's ministry, it has real impact, verse 10. Because in the crowd, there are religious people. And they come out to him and they say, John, what should we do? Verse 11. The one who has two shirts must share with someone who has none. And the one who has food must do the same. Be generous, he says. Then to the Roman, tax collect, uh, the Roman collaborators, the tax collectors, they asked the same question, Teacher, what should we do? And he told them, Don't collect any more than you have been authorised. Then the Jewish religious police, the soldiers, they show up and say, What should we do? 
And John says, don't take money from anyone by force or false accusation, but be satisfied with your wages. Don't be greedy, he says. John tells them to, to produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And apparently they do. But what, re, what produces this response within the people? How does John actually get people to respond to his message to repent? Well, his core message is there in verses 15 to 17. Have a look with me. Now the people were waiting expectantly, and all of them were questioning in their hearts whether John might be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I am is coming. I'm not worthy to untie the strap off his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, <clears throat> Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing shovel is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and gather the wheat uh, into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with fire that never goes out. How does John get people to obey? He tells them judgment is coming. John says that Jesus is going to drench people with the Holy Spirit, but notice also he's going to drench them with fire. And I don't think John is talking about the, the day of Pentecost, tongues of fire. This is more burn up your property and everything around it, inferno fire he has in mind. This is less Acts 2 and more Elijah, Elijah on Mount Carmel fire that we heard about in two kings uh, in our last series that we had, not that long ago. John is looking forward to a fiery blast of messianic judgment. John seems to be convinced that Jesus' ministry is going to blaze this faithful path of condemnation through the middle of God's people. But just stop there for a second. John's message is basically this. God's judgment is about to arrive. So get your act together. Give to the poor. Be honest. And don't get involved in extortion. Now that's all well and good. But doesn't that strike you as just a little bit limited? Now don't get me wrong. God's judgment is coming. Yes, it is good to share with the poor. Greed is bad. And if you are beating up people at the moment, now would be a good time to stop. These are all good things. But they're not exactly the answer to the great human problems exposed in the Old Testament. John's core doesn't address the heart and character issues that we see lie at the heart of the human condition. What about loving God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength? What about loving your neighbor as yourself? What about being holy because God is holy? What about all of that? And John's like, I've got nothing. All I've got is repent and you won't be judged. Now Luke wants Theophilus and us to get this. John's message is true, but it's limited. He knows we need to repent, but like virtually everyone who lives before Jesus, he's pretty sketchy on the details of how we can actually be forgiven, let alone how we can be changed. You see, the hints are all there in the Old Testament, but it seems that most people haven't twigged and I don't think John has fully understood either. So he does what he can. 
and he calls people to repent in the face of God's judgment. You see, John can't preach the whole gospel yet because it hasn't yet fully been revealed. And all he can do is to call the people to come back to God when his judgment is coming against them. And I actually think that explains a little later on in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 7. If you flick over to your Bibles to Luke chapter 7 in verses 18 and 19, you'll see that John now finds himself in prison for speaking against Herod the Tetrarch. And so then he sends actually two of his disciples to Jesus to ask whether or not Jesus really is the Messiah in the end. This is what he says. Then John's disciples told him all about, um, all about these things, that is all that Jesus has been doing. So John summoned two of his disciples and he sent them to the Lord asking, are you the one to come or should we expect someone else? Why does John ask that question? It's because Jesus is going about preaching, he's healing people, he's drawing pictures in the sand, but he hasn't pronounced a whole bunch of judgment at this point in Luke. There has been no fire, there's no winnering shuffle, and John is like, what the heck is going on? And then, and it's because John hasn't quite got it yet. And I think it explains why Jesus says in chapter 7, verse 28, but the least in the kingdom of God is greater than than John. We, in the end, know greater things than John knew, says Jesus, because we see the gospel more clearly than he ever could. All John can do, and it's necessary, and it's important, but all he can do is to tell people to turn around, because judgment is coming. All his message really does is convince people of their need for rescuing and their need for transformation. But for the real deal, for real forgiveness, for real rescue, for real transformation, we need something more. We need someone more. And Luke is helping us to see this. Yes, God has every right to call us to repentance. Yes, our God repeatedly tells us we are sinful people who come up short in all kinds of ways to His standards. Yes, we need to come back to Him. Yes, we need to hear this message to repent. But it's not the message of repentance that changes us. In fact, quite often, all that does is confirm our guilt. We need someone and something more. And Luke knows that real repentance actually flows from faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Luke knows we need not just John, but we need Jesus. And that's why from chapter 3, verse 21, through the end of actually the next chapter, he urges us not simply to repent, but to focus on Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to trust Jesus. Now, repentance is actually a huge deal for the Gospel writer Luke. Half of the references of the noun repentance in the New Testament are in the books of Luke and Acts. The verb form of repentance appears nine times in Luke, five more times in Acts, but only seven times in total of Mark and Matthew combined. More than that, much of the unique material we find in Luke's gospel is about repentance and forgiveness. You know, there's the story of the woman who anoints Jesus' feet in Luke 7. There's the parable of the two sons in Luke 15, the encounter with Zacchaeus in Luke 19, 
Some of the real high points are about repentance and forgiveness. Luke writes his two volumes to celebrate the fact that there is now this glorious possibility of Jewish people turning back to God, of Gentiles turning from idols to serve the true and living God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance and forgiveness are right at the heart of the Gospel of Luke. And Luke wants to make sure that Theophilus gets this early on in the piece, that repentance flows from faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. The message of the gospel isn't just repent, it's put your faith in Jesus and repent, which is why the focus is now in these chapters switches. Now, in these early chapters of Luke, Luke has repeatedly introduced Jesus as the Son of God. So, back in chapter 1, Gabriel says, before Jesus was born, that He would be called the Son of the Most High and the Son of God. And now that Jesus is an adult, Luke picks up this theme again. He says in Luke 3.22, God says um, that He is God's beloved Son. In verse 38, He is the Son of Adam, the Son of God. But what does Luke mean when he just keeps saying this? Jesus is the Son of God. You know, over the years, biblical thinkers have kind of fallen into two camps on this idea. Those who think the Son of God is basically just an Old Testament title to say Jesus is God's promised King. He is God's promised Messiah. And there's those who say the Son of God title carries with this idea of Jesus' divinity. But really the question for us is, is the Son of God... God the Son. Well, let's look at the Bible together, together to get a fuller picture of what Luke means when he's saying this, starting with Jesus' baptism. Now, Luke's account of Jesus' baptism, it is very condensed, right? Look at it in verse 21. When all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And as he was praying, heaven opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in physical appearance like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. When God calls Jesus his beloved son, you know what it actually sounds a bit like, he could be alluding to Psalm 2 in verse 7, where he says, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or Isaiah 42, Behold my servant, my chosen one in whom I delight. Or perhaps he could be referencing to Samuel chapter 7. Now I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. Or God might be saying, Look, I just celebrate that Jesus Christ is my unique son. There is actually nothing else like this in the rest of the Bible. Son of God in this text, in this context, is a remarkable thing for God to say to a man like this. And so the rest of these early chapters of Luke... He fills out for us this reality. And the thing is, and the thing he does in the rest of chapter 3 is to show us that Jesus is in fact true Israel. For Luke, Jesus is the true Israel. He embodies all of what God's people are supposed to be. That's why Luke describes Jesus' baptism the way he does. When all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. Jesus is the one, says Luke, that models the behavior God people should follow. 
He was circumcised on the eighth day. He worshipped in the temple with his parents. Now he shows his commitment to godliness by being baptised by John. He's the true Israelite. But more than that, step two, the Son of God is filled with the Holy Spirit. As Jesus was praying, which I've got to tell you in Luke, is always a sign that something massive is about to happen in salvation history. Something real and objective happens as Jesus is praying. The Holy Spirit descended on Jesus in bodily form like a dove. Now, I've got to tell you, the dove simile here is actually a bit tricky to get your heads around. It could just be the manner in which the Holy Spirit falls, like the sign of rushing wind in Acts 2 at Pentecost. Some people have argued that the dove is a symbol of this kind of trustworthy messenger, like Noah's dove after the flood. But Luke doesn't dwell on any of these things. What he does dwell on is the fact that Jesus is filled with the Spirit. In fact, you can see at the start of the next chapter, then Jesus left the Jordan full of the Holy Spirit and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Then chapter 4, verse 14, Jesus returns to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And then he's preaching the synagogue, synagogue and he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. From this point on, when Jesus acts in the Gospel of Luke, he does so in the power of the Spirit. Jesus is the true Israelite who is filled with the Spirit of God. But more than that, we now come to the genealogy. When Jesus began his ministry, verse 23, as he began his ministry, Jesus was about 30 years old and was thought to be the son of, and Elspeth, I've got to tell you, read it beautifully, and I'm, so I'm not going to be able to do it justice, so I'm just going to skip over all those hard names and jump right down to the bottom for us all. That long pattern of humanity ending like this, the son of Enos, the son of Sheth, Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Now, Luke's purpose for including this family tree is to make a very simple but important point for us to get. That Jesus, the Son of God, is the new second Adam. Not only does Jesus succeed where Israel fails, but He succeeds where Adam failed as well. But actually, more about that next week in chapter 4. But unlike Adam, this son of God embraces and trusts the very good word of God. Now, I hope that you can see that in this chapter, how Jesus, the son of God, towers over this chapter. He is the true Israelite. He is the one who is filled with the Spirit of God. He speaks the word of God. He is the second Adam who stands firm against the evil one. He's the ultimate prophet who brings freedom and clarity and speaks words of grace into a world of hate. Is the Son of God, God the Son? Well, in this chapter, Luke actually doesn't give us a definitive answer. But gosh, he knows where he's going. He's pushing us in that direction to come to that conclusion for ourselves. Because Luke writes all of this, not just to lay kind of out an amazing understanding of Christ for us, but that as God's people, we might be truly changed. Now, in one of my favorite books called Seeing and Savoring Jesus by the American pastor, John Piper, he writes these words. It's Jesus alone who is worthy of our highest admiration. 
It's this Jesus alone who is worthy of our trust. He shows us the Father. He can give us an irresistible wisdom. He can, he can see how to make all things work together for our good. Not one of His judgments about anything is ever mistaken. He teaches the way of God with infallible truthfulness. Trust Him. Admire Him. Follow Him, says Piper. I want to encourage you today to reread the words of Luke chapter self for your, uh, again. Gaze upon the Son of God until something more of Him sinks in for you. These words were given to us that we might respond by trusting Jesus all the more and doing all that flows from that trust. You see, Luke wants us to repent. But just calling us to repent, it won't work by itself. It will either heighten our guilt or release our religious pride as we set about cleaning up our own lives by our own strength. The only way to true repentance and forgiveness is by trusting the Son of God, who is God the Son. For Luke, the gospel clearly proclaims the message of repentance, but Luke understands that repentance can't be separated from faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Real repentance is the work of the Spirit. The key to this repentance is actually gazing upon the Son of God and seeing the mercy of God revealed in Him. That is true gospel repentance. That's why I think saying, but I said I'm sorry, just won't do. It's self-centered, it's self-righteous, and it's bitter to the bottom. It looks to our efforts to make our lives right, rather than looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So what is it to be for you today? In your pride... Or in your great, or um, sorry, is is it your pride, your greatest need to change, or in, is your or your need to repent, uh, in your despair, your greatest need? Is your greatest need to gaze upon the Lord Jesus Christ, either in your despair or in your pride as a Christian? I think Luke would say, no matter who we are, we actually need to do both. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the message that John brought into this world. But thank you even more for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you loved him and that he loved the world, that he laid down his life, that we might look upon your mercy and see the gospel. Thank you that you have filled our lives with your spirit, that we might have true repentance and faith in your son, Jesus Christ. Help us today and this week to gaze upon your Son and all your love and mercy that is revealed in Him. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.